Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In our role as clinicians, especially in the world of communication, trust between ourselves and our patients is critical for success. A key component for cultivating trust with our patients starts from a place of inclusivity. Do our patients feel welcome? And how can we make sure that transgender and gender nonconforming patients feel seen and included? Today's guest is going to help guide us through these conversations and ensure our clinical care is affirming for every patient we meet. Dr. Madison Howe, A-U-D-C-C-C-A, pronouns she, her, hers, is a pediatric audiologist at Arkansas Children's Hospital and an adjunct instructor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. She received her Doctor of Audiology degree from Auburn University. Dr. Howe is very involved with the Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children, or CENTAC, and she's given multiple presentations as an ally to the gender-diverse community. She is a firm believer in patient-centered care for all patients, including diverse cultural groups. Just a couple of quick financial disclosures. I'm the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Dr. Howe received compensation for her contributions to this presentation. Dr. Howe, Madison, whatever is the best way to refer to you, let me know. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Dakota. Definitely Madison is is just fine. Perfect. Perfect. I know both working in pediatrics, it's hard to walk around with the doctor moniker. You kind of like shed that pretty quickly when you walk in the door with some kids. You don't want to freak them out. Definitely. I feel like I have to remind myself sometimes to to use it in certain situations. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So yes, I read an article that you wrote for, I think it was the Asha Wire. Right? <laughs> Ashley Wire, yeah. Yeah. And it was so it was so interesting to me. And it was something in, you know, in all of the different CEU presentations I've been to and like, you know, conferences and things like that. I've just never heard someone speak to gender affirming care and audiology and how this is important. And of course, the light bulb went off and I was like, of course, this is important. And of course, in the last few years, as we become a lot more aware of our own implicit biases and how those impact our clinical care, I hadn't really thought about how my implicit biases when it comes to gender identity could be impacting the way I approach patients, especially in pediatrics. So I'm, I'm so grateful that you wrote that. And it, it came across my, my eye because I think this is such an important conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I never meant to become like the expert on, and I'm definitely still growing and learning myself. It kind of just 
came to me. I, you know, my first transgender patient that I saw, I thought, huh, okay, you know, this is a new thing. I'm going to learn this. And then by my fourth or fifth one, I thought to myself, I really need to do some research and some training and then quickly realize that there's not much out there in gender affirming care for our field. So I really wanted to try to, to share the things I did learn and hopefully spark a conversation, which I think the article's definitely done because here we are today. Yes, that's amazing. And actually, I think that's a perfect place to start our conversation. Would you mind kind of sharing one of those early stories that made you, you know, curious about exploring this topic further as a clinician? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, to give you some background, like you said, I'm I'm at Arkansas Children's Hospital and I don't think our state is necessarily one that comes to mind when you think of being progressive and having a lot of attention about things like gender diversity. So I remember the first time going out into the waiting room to call back a patient and my chart said it was a nine-year-old male and clearly the person walking towards the clinic door after I called the name appeared female. And my first thought was, oh, registration must have gotten something mixed up in the system. You know, clearly this is a, a girl. And kind of didn't really think much on, moved on. And then when I got the family back in the room, mom said to me, we're new here. So we wanted to tell you your chart probably says male, but, you know, she is transgender. We are in the process of transitioning. She uses she, her pronouns. And thankfully, that was just the absolutely most perfect first experience that could have yeah, happened. Yeah, sounds pretty smooth. <laughs> you know, the family was great. They advocated for this patient and they really were very open and upfront about it. But I quickly realized from that first encounter that my implicit bias was so obvious that my first thought was, oh, registration put this in wrong. This is a girl, not a boy. And I never even crossed my mind it could be a transgender patient. So that was really my first encounter with realizing that implicit bias in myself. Yeah, I mean, how great that it was such a, a family who was prepared for that conversation and that you went into it with that mindset as well. I'm I'm glad to hear it went so positively. I'm sure there's people listening out there who've had more challenging first-time experiences with this where their their biases are challenged for the first time. Yes. And I think yeah, so from that point then it sounds like you experienced several more patients, I guess, with a similar situation. And eventually that made you want to explore this a little bit further. I'm curious, before we kind of dig deeper into, you know, gender diversity as a topic in clinical care, if we think about it more in like the zoomed out lens of like our ethical obligations from a competence standpoint, like I said before, like I've, I mean, I've listened to many talks that talk about cultural competence in a lot of ways for audiological care, but never in a way that was regarded that regarded gender identity. So how do you see, you know, gender identity, cultural competence, like ethical obligations as clinicians? How do those three kind of like mesh with each other? Yeah. I mean, I think especially being in pediatrics, the word that comes to me first is patient-centered care. You know, we are always striving to provide patient-centered care. And that means that every person's different. Everyone, and every individual is different. They come with a different set of values and beliefs. And it's our goal as clinicians and ethical providers to provide them care in the way that fits their beliefs and values. And so, you know, I think a word that goes along with cultural competency is just 
ever evolving and ongoing. And I think as the world continues to change, we have to continue to adapt and continue to learn how to provide our patients best care. I mean, I think of even now as a millennial, I'm now starting to realize my patients are not in the same generation as me and they have different needs. And so I'm having to learn and adapt and learn about TikTok and all these cool things just to try to connect with them. And it's the same thing for for gender diversity, you know, learning the patient's preferences and, and their beliefs and their background. And I do think it's really cool. Several organizations, AAA and ASHA, Syntac, they've all come out with statements in their code of ethics now that support providing gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. So it really just comes back to that patient-centered care and, and the ethical charge that we have to really provide holistic patient-centered care for each individual. Wow, that was a beautiful breakdown of that. And I, I think I completely agree with you with how things are cha- like how the world continues to change. It's up to us to stay educated and to keep up. And so I'm grateful that we're able to talk about this because this certainly falls into that category. Speaking of kind of like the whole big picture topic of gender affirming care, how would you define that term for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah. You know, like I said, I think it's something that's growing and evolving. So by the time this podcast gets posted, there might be a new term for it. But for me right now, gender affirming care is providing specifically audiology services to a patient in a way that supports the gender that they align with. So it means not saying you were born with female parts, so I'm going to address you as she. It's saying, how do you want to be addressed? What pronouns do you use? You know, thinking through family dynamics and different things that are associated with gender. You know, does that does that person have a good relationship with their family? Are they out to them? Are they struggling? Is that going to be a part of the picture as we're caring for this person with hearing loss? So really, it comes down to how does the individual identify themselves and how do they align and then cho- actively choosing and participating with them to make sure that they are being cared for in the way they want to be cared for. That's great. That's great. And I think it's so critical that this aspect of we use the term gender identity and identity is such like a powerful term, right? Like how we view ourselves, what our identity is, is so important. And so it's such a critical component. Think of all the other ways that make up one of our patient's identities. Those are all things we'd want to support and, you know, be knowledgeable about. And so this is just another aspect of that that's really critical for our care. So I think that that was a perfect definition for that. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. In a previous episode, we've talked a bit about implicit bias, more specifically when it comes to racial biases. I'm curious how it sounds like you had, you know, one example, I guess, of some implicit bias showing. I'm curious if there's other examples that maybe people have shared with you in their experiences as they've learned more about gender diversity as it relates to them as clinicians and how we see implicit bias kind of bubble up in this realm. Yeah. I mean, implicit bias is just something that'll sneak up on you. And so, so many people have opened up to me And that's one thing I've loved through getting to prison on this topic is the amount of people who've come forward and, you know, shared an embarrassing experience that they realized they had this bias, but how they're now actively trying to overcome it. So some I've definitely heard of, you know, for sure, the initial thought of, oh, the paperwork was wrong. Mm. Or I think a lot of times some verbiage I've heard is someone saying, oh, I thought 
she was just a tomboy or, you know, oh, I thought he was just a little feminine. Or I hear a lot of, especially audiologists talking about when they're they realize their biases when they're having a, a child pick out a hearing aid color that oh, maybe yeah. if it's a little girl, they're showing them pink and purple first. And in your mind, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's a, it's a bias. It's something society has, has trained us to associate certain colors with certain genders, you know, things like that, or, you know, talking more from the speech side when we might have a speech pathologist working with one of our kids with hearing loss and maybe they think, oh, she's a girl. She wants her voice to sound more feminine. We need to work on that. You know, it's just these societal norms that we've been raised in and and we've just been trained to think these certain things associate with certain genders. So that's a lot of what people tell me when they think about their biases is just, you know, oh, I, they had on a pink shirt. I thought it was a girl, (laughs) you know? Sure. So it's interesting to to think about how society has formed those biases in us and how we we actually do use them a lot more than we realize. I mean, just today I think I had a little girl picking out pink and purple ear molds and my first thought was, "Oh, so cute, so girly." You know, it's like, "Okay, time mm-hmm. out. They're just colors. <laughs> what yeah. makes that girly?" You know? So it's it's also a process of just learning to accept that biases happen and don't punish yourself for having them. Instead, work on trying to overcome them because everyone has them. So instead of getting down on yourself for thinking that way, just think about how you could improve for the next time. That's great. I, I love that you gave us some perfect examples of ways that these things flare up and then also you know what we can do about it, acknowledging it, not getting down on yourself and learning from it. And yeah, I, I'm hoping later on as we speak a little bit more to maybe some specific cases, we can talk about some of those very audiology specific ways that these things bubble up. The friend of mine who was in that previous episode, Dr. Logan Hamlin, she spoke to some of the ways those implicit biases show up racially in audiology. And they were so interesting. Some were related to, you know, device color, but also the way that some technology works with different hairstyles and things mm-hmm. like that. It was so interesting and so important to learn these kinds of things. And so we, if we don't know to even think about how we're accidentally, you know, causing these microaggressions, sometimes it's hard to learn from them, right? So I think it's important that we share even, you know, any other specific ideas that we have. But before we get to that, actually, I was wondering if you could share, and I know this is another thing too, that probably, you know, definitely changes over time. And it's continuing to change and maybe outdated in no time from now. But if there's any kind of like appropriate terminology that maybe we could use, because I've seen gender diverse, I've seen like gender nonconforming or transgender. What are the best? I mean, I know a lot of this is going to be, you know, patient centered, right? If we're going to use their pronouns, things like that. But are there any, you know, acceptable terminology that we should be trying to use that'd be most appropriate? Yeah. And I agree. A lot of it is patient-centered. You know, I, I really like the term gender diversity because it encompasses so much. You know, using a term transgender can be specific to someone who has transitioned to one specific gender, but there are gender identities out there like non-binary where they actually don't identify with, you know, one of our stereotypical genders of male or female there's gender fluid patients that feel their gender changes and they identify with different genders or things at different times. So I love the term gender diversity because I feel like that encompasses all those different terms. And gender affirming practice doesn't necessarily mean we're affirming a certain gender. It just means 
we're affirming the gender diversity that is out there. Hmm. You know, there's there's a few more terms that you might hear like cisgender. So I'm cisgender. I identify as female and I was born female. And then like the term transgender female would be someone that was assigned male at birth but identifies as female. And I think transgender historically has had a very different connotation, but now it's really primarily used just in the context of someone who has transitioned. There's also a term gender dysphoria that you might hear a lot, and that that's referring to the the distress, the the anxiety, the depression that a, an individual feels when they're not feeling like they align with the gender they were assigned at birth. So that's something, you know, whenever we're talking about a patient that's experiencing these thoughts and feelings, it's often labeled as gender dysphoria. So those are just some of the terms I feel like that, you know, float around. I definitely think that they're constantly changing. Hmm. And I feel like I'm always looking on the internet or, or trying to figure out if there's new terms out there. But definitely gender diversity, I think, is is one of my favorite ones. Like if I'm referring to a patient that I'm working with and maybe they're still figuring out their gender, maybe they're still exploring that, then I would say they're a gender diverse patient that, you know, that's kind of the category I would put that in. That's great. That's great. Thank you for sharing all of those. And I'm I'm curious too, one, another one that I see a lot would be like AMAB mm-hmm. or AFAB, which I, I think is assigned male at birth. Yes, those are sort of like abbreviations I feel like are mostly used in text. So I see those a lot on like hashtags on social media. Sometimes I'll see them in a medical record. But again, I think it really comes down to what the individual feels that they identify as. Mm. I I definitely think there's some people out there that the term transgender has historically had a negative association. And so maybe saying they're transgender, that brings up harmful emotions to them. So they might prefer sure. to to have a different term. But really, I think the best thing is just to ask them. And, you know, the first few times that can feel a little bit awkward, but truly, once you can ask them, it opens up a door of, of trust and comfort. And it's amazing to see the relationship change once you get over that initial hump of like, I feel weird asking this question. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, the benefit that comes from asking that question can be so huge yeah. in establishing rapport. And yeah, that's, that's so true. Cool. Okay. So for our maybe clinicians who have been in the field for a very long time, who like you have, you know, only in the last few years started to see, you know, I mean, maybe they previously had seen gender diverse patients and didn't realize it or didn't know what to say or ask, but it, does it seem like there is a, a rise in gender diverse patients, especially in the world of hearing loss? I definitely think so. You know, like I said, when I saw my fourth or fifth transgender patient here in Arkansas, I I quickly realized with the demographic of our state here, if this is what I'm seeing, I know this is something that's, that's everywhere. You know, we've definitely seen huge jumps in numbers. The, the prevalence of transgender youth has doubled in the last five years, doubled. I mean, that's a lot. And then specifically with hearing loss, there's over 300 million people that identify LGBTQ plus that are, are deaf or have hearing loss. So this is not a small group by any means. 
another interesting thing, you know, people who are deaf and hard of hearing historically have actually either come out as, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender later in life because they didn't have access to information on this this community simply because, you know, there wasn't a lot of ASL out there that was communicating this sort of thing. So we see a lot of these patients that kind of come out a little later in life. So it's just interesting to to connect hearing loss and gender diversity. And I really do think we're seeing a big boom right now, partly because of social media. You know, people have access to, to talking to each other and sharing their feelings and finding the, someone that will support them and encourage them. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, maybe maybe on the rise, maybe this is just a population we haven't been as aware of, but I am curious kind of like in relation to that, the cultural competence then of clinicians when it comes to working with gender diverse patients. I mean, I don't know if there's been research done on this, right? But I know more recently, there's been more and more research looking into are clinicians aware of their own implicit biases, especially when it comes to things like socioeconomic factors and race. And we're starting to understand more about kind of like our profession as a whole, as it relates to these things and our, our own cultural competence. Has there been any research out there about like audiologists' cultural competence when it comes to working with gender diverse people? There really hasn't. You know, if you look in like ASHA leader articles, there's been a couple articles, but primarily the education has focused on using pronouns, which is definitely a huge and very important part of providing gender affirming care. Really, you know, all I've seen in my own journey trying to educate myself and develop cultural competency in this area, I really only found information about pronoun use. So I do think our organizations and our places that we work are are starting down this road, but I do think it's Mm -hmm. a very new thing that we're just starting to see formal training on this. I was even talking to a group of AUD students the other day and just said, have y'all learned anything about this? And their response was, well, only what I see on Instagram. (laughs) So I do. Which is maybe good, maybe not so good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Hard to say. So I do hope that, you know, at the core of of our education is, is starting with those AUD programs. So I do hope this is something that we're educating students on. And, and hopefully it will just continue to, to grow and it'll continue to be a part of continuing education for every audiologist out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I smell a research project for you there to understand <laughs> current clinical attitudes and, you know, awareness of our own cultural competence when it comes to this, because I, I mean, I don't know if the research supports this, but I do feel like a lot of times when it comes to topics like this that we're not familiar with, sometimes people overestimate their competence. I know the more I learn, the less I know almost, the less I realize I knew in the first place, maybe it's a better way to put it. You brought up that you know some of the research has looked at uh, awareness of pronouns and utilizing pronouns, whether that's in documentation or in intake paperwork. I'm curious, like I feel like when it comes to people who aren't as familiar with you know the gender diverse community, sometimes it's just kind of boiled down to pronouns, like that just tends to be like the major talking point and sometimes like debating point for people when it comes to this. I'm curious how pronouns kind of play into clinical care, I guess, in that way, and how we can approach them and how, you know, how they can be incorporated, I guess, into our clinical care. Yeah. You know, I think it's something that we don't really think about, you know, as 
cisgender individuals, it's like, well, I've always been a she. That's why do I need to tell someone that's what I am? But it's definitely a very important part of providing gender affirming care, addressing people how they want to be addressed and recognizing that using the wrong pronoun could definitely cause someone gender dysphoria where they have all of this, you know, traumatic feelings and emotions come up about their whole, you know, transitioning process and maybe past trauma that they had before they transitioned. And so the importance of, of that just in life is so important, but especially as an audiologist, when you're trying to build trust and rapport with your patients, I mean, the simplest thing is just making sure you call them by the right name. I mean, it's like one time I went to a wedding and the minister said the wrong names at the altar and (laughs) clearly that ruined the whole wedding. So it's, you know, very similar to that. Like, what if you've been calling this person by the wrong pronoun or addressing them in the wrong way this whole time? And that's all they can focus on because it's, it's, it's an upsetting thing. So it really boils down to just respect for the person too. So I think, you know, we see a lot more on our email signatures nowadays. People are putting their pronouns on there. I think that's a great place to start. I'd love long-term for, you know, hospitals and places to be putting pronouns on name badges. I think that's a great way to spark the conversation. But really the simplest way is to introduce yourself. So for instance, if I'm unsure of a patient's pronouns and I don't want to directly ask them, I could say, hi, you know, I'm I'm Dr. Madison Howe, I'll be your audiologist today. I use she, her pronouns. And it just kind of opens up the door, gives an opportunity for the patient to respond back with their pronouns as well. So to me, that's really the most natural way to make it flow, to ask for a pronoun. Yeah, I love that example. And I, I think you're exactly right. Sometimes one of the biggest barriers might be just that discomfort of wondering how to bring this up because it's not coming from a place of disrespect. You're just trying ultimately to be as respectful as possible. But how do you even ask this question? Mm-hmm. And so just declaring it as yourself can be a great way to invite that conversation. I think that's an awesome, an awesome example for that. That's yeah. great. And I, you know, I think case intake forms are are kind of the easiest way to do it because then you don't even have to ask. It's just written on the paper when you get it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I know with, with bigger organizations, like for instance, working at a hospital, it can be harder to get the, the intake paperwork changed. So, and I just, you know, I like to ask and spark that conversation. I think it also shows them this is a safe space to talk about these things because, you know, not every patient that is experiencing these feelings is is fully out or fully discovered mm, how they're identifying sure. and maybe they they don't have anybody to talk to you about it and just mm. you asking a question that shows that you are a safe place for you know diversity and and opening that door might allow them to really feel comfortable opening up to you. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great reminder too. I feel like sometimes in healthcare, we can seem very intimidating (laughs) to patients, Mm -hmm. especially working with pediatrics, depending on how you approach them at all. And, you know, they might already be reserved being in the doctor's office or being at the hospital. And so this is just another way to really invite them in and support them and affirm them early on in the conversation. Okay. So kind of speaking of that self-expression and those kinds of things, I'm curious, like, I think you brought up a great example earlier of hearing aid colors and how those can, you know, be a form of self-expression in a way and how we can sometimes accidentally support 
our gender biases and how we talk about hearing aid colors. But I'm curious, in what other aspects of audiology care do we see either these biases arise or maybe even like opportunities to check those biases in ways we might not expect? Yeah, it definitely the hearing aid color was the most obvious to me. And, and it's so true. Like we do it every day where you see a pink outfit and you think, oh, that's for a girl. And so that's, it's a big one. You know, I think thinking through different toys. So like I might pull out the princess toys when I think I'm, you know, it's a, it's a girl and, and she's going to want to wow, play with yeah. princesses and, and in pediatrics, yeah. especially we have lots of toys or, oh, you know, this boy might want to play with the cars. And you know, I, I catch myself kind of saying, well, why don't I let them choose? Why don't I let them pick out the mm-hmm. toy they want to play with instead of me just pushing my bias of thinking this is a girl and she wants to play with princesses. So that's one way specifically with pediatrics that I've, I've caught myself a few times. Yeah, I completely agree. I have done the same thing. And I reached a point where I was like, I think the only way that I'm going to stop doing this is if I just offer you know, two options of very, very different, you know, previous gender conforming like ideals. Mm-hmm. So like, do you want to do princesses or do you want to do cars? Yeah. <laughs> like you can pick one of those two. And then oftentimes, honestly, a lot of our toys now are less and less kind of within those categories. We've got the monkey and the bananas and we've got like the ring stack. Yeah. You know what I mean? Neither of those kind of fit into either category and we don't have to worry about, you know, potentially like, you know, offending anyone with that kind of a thing, which is great. Yeah. And it's it's crazy to think too about how young that process starts. So like mm-hmm. when I was educating and trying to learn more about gender development and gender diversity, finding that children actually are starting to understand their own personal gender by around 16 months, like they can recognize that stereotypical things associated with their gender and really almost have a fully developed stereotype of gender by three to five years old. And and that wow. seems so young to me. You know, you would think, oh, they're only three. They don't understand this is a princess and it, it's historically been a toy for girls, but but they can. Mm-hmm. And that they can express that is is that was really shocking to me to realize how young that starts forming. Wow. Yeah, that's another great example. And yeah, I, I I hadn't thought about that at all. I think that's a really interesting fact about how early we kind of program our society into conforming to these standards that we've made up. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious if there's been any other, you know, audiology specific scenarios that have bubbled up or just things we can be more mindful of in maybe the way that we provide clinical care Yeah. to avoid those kinds of things. Yeah. One specific thing comes to mind because in my mind, this was just, it broke me for days. I didn't sleep. I I was losing sleep over this situation where I had a a teenage patient come in who transitioned. So I had previously seen them as a different gender, but at this visit came in and, and expressed that they have a new name and new pronouns and that all went very smoothly and I was using those pronouns. I was, you know, doing everything I could to be an ally for this person. And we we did our appointment. Hearing aids are working great. She's got great aided benefit. And I send him out the door. And a couple weeks later, I get a phone message from a parent saying they wanted to come in. There were some issues with the hearing aid. And 
And she comes in and she says, well, it's not a sound issue. The issue is every time I connect my hearing aids to my phone, my dead name pops up. So dead name. Wow. Oh, I didn't even think about that. No. So, you know, dead name is, is the name they used before transitioning. So for instance, I think a popular one people think of is, is Caitlyn Jenner. And if you were to refer to Caitlyn as Bruce Jenner, that would be dead naming. And that's mm-hmm. a very hurtful and harmful thing to transgender people. It just brings up a lot of emotions. And so this girl, every time she would connect her phones to her hearing aids, it was popping up with her dead name. And of course, she was so sweet and said, I, I tried to ignore it and I tried to think, but it just, it was emotional for her. And it was all because I didn't think to change her name in Noah when I was programming her hearing aid. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had changed it in the medical record. I had used gender affirming language in my report. But just that day in the moment, I forgot to change her name in Noah. And so it was as simple as changing her name in Noah, reconnecting her hearing aids and saving it. And that that fixed the problem. But I mean, that just broke me to think this 15-year-old who probably loves streaming on her phone <laughs> was actually gotten to the point where she was not connecting her hearing aids to her phone anymore because it was so emotional for her. Wow. And, you know, something as, as simple as my mistake had this impact on on her. So that stuck with me. And I definitely remember to change even a, a preferred name of a, you know, a cisgender patient. I try really hard to remember to update Noah now. So that was yeah. kind of a learning experience that, you know, you don't hear about in a webinar or in a textbook. And that was one thing I just kind of learned through experience. Yeah, that is a perfect example. I'm really glad you shared that. And I know that's a really, I'm sure that's a really hard memory to get back to. But I mean, I had never even thought of that. I probably would have done the exact same thing. I think that's a really helpful reminder of a really easy way to do something that can really hurt someone in a way we wouldn't even have considered before or thought to change. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm wondering what other ways, I guess, I mean, this, I guess, isn't even really that specific to audiology, but just ways we can be more gender affirming in the ways we talk to our patients and their families. I think of like, I, I follow a lot. I use a lot of like, it's not slang anymore because I'm old, but I'd be like, (laughs) way to go, dude. Like, you know, language like that, that can very easily fall into specific gender categories and could very easily, you know, be incorrect, you know? Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, just more general gender affirming language we should be maybe mindful of. Well, and definitely, you know, in English, we have it easy because really for us, the only gendered parts of our language is our pronouns and then words that we have societally associated with gender. You know, in other languages like Spanish, every ending of a word has an O or an A pretty much, and that's associated with the gender. So truly, we have one of the easiest languages to be gender affirming with. Hmm. So it's just an interesting thing when I was studying gender affirming practice, uh, realizing, oh, we, we should be able to do this. This is easy for English speakers Definitely, you know, I I think in pediatrics, especially, we catch ourselves using terms like dude and girlfriend. And Mm -hmm. I had one supervisor and I thought it was so cute. She called kids ladybug and and stopping and realizing that that could have a negative connotation for someone. Sure. So that that's really important. 
I try really hard to be mindful of my compliments. So saying something like, you know, you look pretty today or you look handsome could for some people be associated with a gender. So I try really hard to be careful with, with words I'm using when I compliment people. I also think it's just a really good practice to, to compliment people on you know, their personal characteristics, not necessarily how they look that day. Mm. So that's something I've tried. Just, you know, I love you know, that you walked up here with confidence. You don't have to say, oh, you're, I like your outfit or I think you look pretty today. So that's one way I really try to, to apply gender-affirming language more using honorifics. So especially here in the South, <laughs> we say things like, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, oh, yeah. yep. all the time. And, you know, I catch myself doing it with patients all the time, like, you know, you got it, ma'am. <laughs> and so remembering that, and I actually had a conversation with, with someone in the gender diverse community who's from the South. And I said, okay, I am guilty at Chick-fil-A. I say, you know, thank you, ma'am. And I don't know that the lady at the drive-thru is identifying as female. So am I impolite if I just say thank you? Because as a Southerner, that feels impolite to not say thank you, (laughs) ma'am. So catching yourself with some of this, those little things that you never have had to think about before, but just thinking about the impact your words can have on someone mm-hmm. is really important. Now, being in the South, though, we do have the privilege of y'all. We do. And y'all is a great one, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> y'all's the, y'all's the, the answer. Yes. <laughs> to addressing a crowd. I love, yes. I love a good y'all. Yeah. Cool, cool. Awesome. Yeah, those are all really good reminders of the ways that those things can pop up. Okay, but, but... When we inevitably mess up mm-hmm. and you know use the wrong honorific or drop a dead name, what do we do? Like, how do we? How should we be approaching these conversations? Well, I can speak to this one from experience for sure. You know, I remember the first time I messed up, I was so apologetic and I drew so much attention to it. And honestly, I think that made the whole situation worse. So, everything I've read and and working with people who are gender diverse, it kind of is a resounding, you know, quickly make an apology, but move on, you know, do not draw more Mm. attention to it than needs to be. I think you personally are probably going to beat yourself up more (laughs) than the situation will. So just, you know, quickly move on, apologize. I'm sorry, correct yourself and move on. Don't draw unnecessary attention to it. And it doesn't feel natural because you're you're gonna want to, as a, a caring provider, apologize and try to make it better. But but truly, I think less is more when you're and just just move on, correct yourself, and and try for better next time. That's great. That's a really <laughs> helpful and what's the word? You know, forgiving. You know, way to approach these things because I guess inevitably, yeah, we are going to make mistakes in this realm. We're learning all the time, right? And we can't instantly be the experts on all aspects of cultural competence, but it comes with, you know, having grace for the patients and for yourselves, being willing to acknowledge the mistake and move on. I think that's really, really good advice. Yeah. And try not to make it all about yourself. Well, and I think too, you know, we often think of ourselves as being the expert in the room, but when you're working with someone in the gender diverse community, you've got an expert right in front of you. Mm. I think it's really important to build a partnership with your patient, not just a one-way relationship. So often I'll even say, hey, 
I'm trying to grow in this area. You know, I'm learning and I want to be better. Can you hold me accountable? Can you help me be better? You know, will you call me out on something if I say something wrong? And, And it feels weird and a little awkward at first, but I really feel like that's how I've learned so much of this is just from being open and honest with my patients and saying, hey, I want to be a better ally for you. Will you help me? Yeah. And it, I think it empowers them too. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because we're all, we're all in it together. And at the end of the day, like the goal is better care for them. Yeah. Right. And so I'm, I'm sure most, most of our patients would be really happy that we're, we're taking the time in the first place. Cause we, we've learned that with all of the conversations I've had about improving cultural competence, it's the effort that so many of our patients are so grateful for. I'm in a provider who's really taking the time to try to learn and understand. Definitely. Switching gears a little bit to, well, I mean, I guess it's not really that much of a, a gear switch because it's more about, you know, this language aspect of it. I do feel sometimes in, in a previous episode, we've talked more specifically about working with interpreters and kind of like the interesting and maybe awkward social encounters that can come from a third party, like being a part of the conversation, but also not being a part of the conversation. Yes. Have you ever, have you had any experiences with that or anything to share when it comes to working with gender diverse patients and also having an interpreter yeah. involved? I, you know, and it's funny, Dakota, I actually listened to, re-listened to that episode with Kelly Murphy the other day because it's one of my favorites. I think working with interpreters is something that doesn't feel natural to anyone and it's something you have to work to get better at. So in that episode, Dr. Murphy mentioned, you know, sometimes she likes to have an interpreter meet with her before going in to talk with the family. And I've, I found that really effective for this population too. So if I have to have an interpreter, just kind of pulling them aside at the start of the visit and saying like, Hey, I don't know if you know that, you know, Johnny's transgender and they use they, them pronouns, you know, are you, are you comfortable with that? And and just establishing, you know, pronouns, their name, giving some background information, especially if it's a patient who's still sort of exploring and discovering and and just sort of checking in with the interpreter and, and seeing their comfort level with the vocabulary that could be associated with that. Especially it can get challenging when maybe you have a patient and parents who aren't aligning. Maybe the the family has not accepted this part of the child. And so the interpreter might need to be aware things could get a little bit complicated and, and a little sure. heated. And so I really think just giving the interpreter the professional courtesy of, of a little heads up before going in is important. And that I found can be really, really impactful. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's a great reminder for how, <laughs> how to navigate those conversations sometimes. And yeah, I think I also love that episode. I also love Kelly. I'm glad to hear that you're going back and listening to it. That's so that makes me feel so awesome. I'm like, that's such a good episode. I'm glad people are listening to it. So yes, but definitely I love, you know, incorporating working with the interpreter ahead of time to make sure that conversation goes as smoothly as possible is great. I'm hoping we're going to have some time to talk about some more like specific cases. Yeah. But maybe kind of still on this realm of like the more professional kind of issues aspect of it when it comes to you know charting and using the right you know terminology and documentation and how and where and when to talk about those things in a visit note mm-hmm. how do you approach those things and how do you recommend listeners kind of approach that yeah you know and i think thankfully with the us that are working with a large electronic medical record system it makes it 
a little bit easier. So for instance, we use Epic and Epic has a really simple way to put into the chart their gender identity and then what Epic defines as legal sex or what sex was assigned at birth. And so that's really nice because because you can quickly view it all in there. But I still like to incorporate some of it in my documentation as well. So specifically, if a patient were to express to me their gender transition or gender identity for the first time at a visit, I like to just put in sort of my introductory statement, a brief introduction of who the patient is, just like I would for anyone else. So I might say, Susie's a 12-year-old female. And then for this patient who disclosed something to me, I might say, Susie's a 12-year-old assigned male at birth who identifies as female. And then from that point on, I simply use the gender-affirming pronoun because you can reference back to that introductory statement to, to understand more if there's questions. But I really like to use gender-affirming language throughout my report because then any other doctor or physician or maybe a, someone at school that's reading that report, it sets them up for success too because then they get to sure. you know, say the patient seeing me first and then going to ENT and ENT re- reads my note. Well, they don't have to ask the patient what their pronoun is because they've got it right there. <laughs> so I think remembering to set other people up for success through that is important. I've also read up on some things that say really you only need to address like the gender assigned at birth one time in documentation. So for instance, at that initial visit, when you see them, you would sort of write that introductory statement. But then from then on out at any subsequent visit, you would just use gender affirming language. Got it. That's awesome. That's a great idea. And then more out of curiosity than anything else, I mean, it depending i guess on how a patient decides to present or if they've never had an opportunity to share their pronouns is it safer to just utilize you know the assigned at birth pronouns within the documentation is it a better bet to use like gender neutral language like they said they or their hearing aid is broken how do you tend to approach that in documentation when you're not exactly sure what their answer is to that? That is a tough one. I think my preference would be to just use their name a lot. Okay. But there are some situations where you can't get away from a pronoun. So I do think using they, them might be a more appropriate one, especially if you know they're actively in the process of exploring their pronoun. So I, I think that's a good option to try. It's definitely hard. You know, this is something that you have to practice and it takes time. I still remember going back to a report a few days later, reading the report and realizing one time I used the wrong pronoun in a sentence, you know, this it's, mm, it takes yeah. practice. And so, but you know, just the fact that you're thinking through those things and, and actively keeping it on the front of your mind, I think helps. Yeah. And I, I think it's hard too, because I know there are some like dot phrases in Epic that will automatically pull. And so if you haven't updated it, I guess in their, in their sheet, it will automatically use, you know, whatever at pronoun for them. And that can, you know, later you're like, oh my gosh, it just auto-populated that. And I had no idea. Yeah. So 
all a good reminder to make sure we're, you know, keeping up with this in our documentation too, because that's where it can kind of, I guess, sneak up on you. Yeah. You don't even really expect it. And really, honestly, the easiest ones for me are, you know, we have a gender spectrum clinic at our hospital. And if, if the patient's already attended that clinic, that report can provide so much good information about how the patient mm-hmm. is identifying. So if, if you're able to do a chart review and, and see documentation from a gender clinic or a social worker, I think that can really also help you get some insight. And and I often look at how they write their reports because I consider them the experts in that area. Absolutely. That's a great place to start, right? As someone who who is the expert there. Cool. Hmm. Okay. Before we get to specific cases, I wanted to ask you a little bit different from providing clinical care. And I guess maybe the approach for this is probably going to be pretty similar, but you know, coworkers who are gender diverse is one question I want to have I had for you. Like if there's a different way we would approach that or, you know, anything you want to speak to on having coworkers who are gender diverse, but also maybe seeing a coworker who, you know, doesn't approach these conversations well, or, you know, speaking up, you know, when it comes to being an ally and speaking up to people who might be cisgender and not being respectful or not being gender affirming in their care. What advice do you have for audiologists who might find themselves in that situation and and maybe how to approach those conversations? Yeah, that's a tough one. Well, first, you know, as far as having coworkers who are are transgender or gender diverse, in many corporations and companies, it's actually a form of sexual harassment if you do not address that person in the way they are identifying. So I think that's pretty cut and dry for me. You're going to get a write up to HR if you're not doing that. So yeah. You, you should definitely be doing that. As far as seeing someone not do it, you know, it's kind of been a journey for me since I, I actually presented a presentation on this just to a small group of people in an ASHA SIG-9 and it kind of blew up. And so I've gotten a lot of emails and, and some messages from people that are, aren't necessarily positive. And I understand there's some political and sometimes religious or cultural upbringings that that have people form beliefs. And so I would say if you're you're seeing a coworker that is not practicing gender affirming care, I think the best thing to do is just to remind them of what we are called to do as audiologists. Um, okay. I've caught myself reminding people that this is actually in the ASHA code of ethics. So, you know, sure. you have your C's and, and we're called to provide this. Oftentimes I just say, hey, I noticed this. Did you know that about the patient? And, you know, hopefully a lot of times they're going to say, oh, no, I didn't know that. Thank you for letting me know. I'll be better next time. But thankfully I haven't encountered anyone actively and purposefully not using this when they know better. But I think really just reminding your coworkers that this isn't just a, a preference thing. This is an ethical thing that we are charged with as audiologists. And absolutely. And, I, you know, I think it's hard for us to hold each other accountable, but that's mm-hmm. the only way our field is going to continue to grow and learn. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really helpful reminder that it is our ethical obligation to say something, right? And we're all only going to get better if we can recognize these situations and do something about it. So yeah, I I think that's a really helpful reminder. And I've had parents say to me, you know, because there's definitely times where parents are not on the same page as the patient and they'll say something to me about, you know, how could you as a Christian or as a Southerner support this? And I just have said, you know, I, I leave my 
religious, political, whatever beliefs at the door when I put on my audiology hat. So I think just remembering to to walk in there with a patient-centered mindset. Mm, that's a great reminder. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So I think we've got some time to talk case studies. Yeah. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> I will say I have had at least that we had open discussions about only two patients so far where we had like a really big discussion, but one of them was in my fourth year and he was, I want to say like 12, 13. We were like almost high school age and we had a whole conversation because grandma was primary caregiver. Grandma had no idea how we were going to navigate this conversation and grandma warned me, you know, he is using he I don't know if she back then I mean I guess disclosing pronouns wasn't probably as prevalent back then but she did make it clear that this person was you know thinking through some of these differences and how they viewed themselves and what their identity was when it came to gender and preferred a different name than their typical name but was still kind of figuring that out so when I asked him his name he actually said a different name than grandma had just told me and grandma's <laughs> like yep see we're working through it we're trying to figure out our name first we're yeah. you know, we're getting through these things and it was such an interesting experience. And I, I was fortunate too. I do feel like it was a really positive, you know, kind of format to explore this conversation as it related to his hearing loss, as it related to, yeah, he was in the process of getting worked up for a cochlear implant and kind of working through that process together was really, really special. So that was a case that I, I appreciated, but I'm curious if there's others that either you have experienced or that people have shared with you that you feel like maybe glean some helpful reminders when it comes to this topic. Yeah. One that immediately pops into mind. I had a patient who transitioned who had a pretty precipitously sloping high frequency hearing loss and was, you know, assigned male at birth, transitioning to be female. The family had opted to not seek cochlear implantation. And the patient asked me, you know, they said, I'm transitioning. I want to, you know, I identify as female. I'm transitioning to female and I'm taking these medications to, you know, alter my body. And I know one of the effects is my voice is going to sound higher pitched and I want to sound more feminine. And I quickly realized that we were going to have to have a really kind of talk about realistic expectations because based on their hearing loss and not pursuing cochlear implantation, it was going to be really hard for this patient to hear some of those high frequency cues. Mm. Sure. that they would need to kind of start down the road of modulating their voice. And so we actually discussed that and revisited cochlear implantation as, you know, an option or, you know, a, a, could that maybe help? But in the end, we, we talked about, you know, working with a speech therapist in the voice clinic, but really having a realistic expectation of, it might be really hard for you to hear some of these high frequency sounds and, and modulate your own voice. So we we just maxed hearing aids out the best we could. Yeah. Um, but I never thought I would be sitting there trying to give a hearing aid as much high frequency gain as I could so that the patient could could modulate their own voice to sound differently. So that was an interesting that is super interesting. Yeah, yeah. In a way I'd never expect our audiological care to factor into someone's gender identity. But wow, what a helpful reminder. I mean, that's tough. <laughs> that's definitely, definitely tough to try to make your case. I mean, we try to make the case all the time, you know, that someone would qualify and would just do so well with a cochlear implant. But to think that it could have, you know, an impact in that aspect of their life is just really interesting. Yeah. 
Another one that comes to mind for me too is I was like an 11 or 12 year old and came in with a foster parent and the foster parent stepped out of the booth to take a phone call. I was just making small talk with the patient as we're, you know, getting inserts and getting set up for testing. And, and they disclosed to me that they were identifying as a different gender and starting to have these feelings. And so I asked if, you know, they had talked to anyone and they said no. And I asked if they wanted to talk to anybody and they said no. And that was, that was hard for me as, as an audiologist, Mm. especially working with kids, like I'm a fixer. Mm -hmm. And so that was really hard. Like, oh, I, I, I don't want to betray this child's trust, but, you know, am I concerned, you know, gender diverse population has high rates of self-harm and suicide. Like, am I worried about this patient's safety? Do I need to say something? Do I need to call social work? And thankfully we had the opportunity to talk a little later in the visit and I got to explain to the patient a little more like what that looks like talking to somebody and what, what that could do. And they came around to talking with the social worker, but it was definitely a little, just a moment of like, oh my gosh, I have this secret and I, I want to help, but I can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that that's kind of an interesting area of especially working with pediatrics is figuring out, you know, are you are you out to your parents? Do you have someone to talk to? Do you want resources? And not all of them do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Those can be really tough conversations. And I guess if you're your goal is to help and they, it sounds like that patient really just wanted to share that information with somebody, you know, somebody, anybody to listen if they hadn't had an opportunity to really explore that conversation with someone before. Hey, so it sounds like you did a great job of being inclusive and getting their trust. You know, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. But yeah, definitely can be a really difficult conversation. Cool. Well, we're kind of getting close to the end of our time. I did want to kind of wrap up with maybe a couple different things. So I don't know in what order, whatever order you want to address them. But one thing would be, what's the best way to stay up to date, whether it's with, you know, gender affirming terminology or just, you know, cultural competence when it comes to this topic, like what's the best way to stay, you know, up to date on these things. And then also like, what do you feel like are the biggest lessons, especially for people who maybe are like, this is a world that's completely new to them. They've never even considered how to be gender affirming as an audiologist or as a clinician, what you feel like the the best like first steps are. Maybe we can start with that one. Like what would be the best first steps for someone who is just getting at this and they're like, you know what, I want to be gender affirming. What can I start doing like this week? Yeah, I think step one is to let your guard down in the sense of you're going to mess up. You're going to feel awkward at first, you know, just set that expectation and it's okay. And I think, you know, if you are working with a patient that's gender diverse, one of the very first things you can do is just tell them that you want to learn to be an ally. You want to be better and ask for their help. I think it's just great to build that partnership. And then I think another really simple thing is just start practicing with your own pronouns. When you introduce yourself to people, you know, start saying, hey, I'm Dr. Dakota Sharp and I use blah, blah, blah pronouns. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's something that takes practice, but it kind of gets to the point where you realize, you know, it's like doing spondy words for SRT. You kind of forget that you're doing them because it just feels so second nature. So (laughs) I think that's a really easy step. And then maybe, you know, find a coworker that can you can say, hey will you hold me accountable? Will you help me with this? And having someone else kind of hold you accountable can really be a positive thing too. 
That is awesome. That's really good advice that I hadn't even considered is, you know, someone you trust who you feel like would be able to check you on these things and getting them in the loop and you guys working together to both improve this kind of care that you're providing. I think that's a really, really good idea. I think that's a great idea for all, like a lot of the aspects of what we do, right? Is having someone we can be accountable to who will call us out in these moments when we don't even recognize what we're doing, Mm -hmm. when we recommend the princess toy or the truck toy. And didn't even acknowledge it. I think that's a that's a really great idea. I'm yeah. appreciative of that idea. And it's like you know, I even realized the other day, like we have a box of stickers labeled the boy stickers and the girl stickers. Oh no! You know, yeah. It's as simple <laughs> as that. Like, oh, really? Yeah, I need yeah. to talk to our. We need to quit. And then we have gender neutral stickers. So it's like, well, sure. maybe we need to just kind of make them all gender neutral. So you know, little things like that. I think you can just look around and and start making small changes and small steps. But really, I love the idea of just partnering with your patient and let learning from them. Yeah, let them lead you and teach you. Yeah. That's really where you're going to learn the yeah. most. Awesome. And then I think your other point was about, you know, how do you continue learning? How do you find resources? And I really do think that there's two great things happening in our field right now. One being that, you know, a lot of organizations requiring CEUs like ASHA are requiring now a certain number of hours in cultural competency and diversity. And so with that, I think will come a lot more opportunities for webinars and talks and continuing ed on these sorts of topics. I know, for instance, like at Syntac this year, we have a whole panel on gender diversity. But I think, you know, using your resources that you have there, but also just communicating with other people, you know, it's as simple as you have an audiologist friend that works at a different hospital somewhere else and calling them up and say, hey, are you encountering these, you know, gender diverse patients? And what are you doing? How are you working with them? And, you know, what, what challenges have you faced? And I think just opening up a conversation and I see a lot of that happening, like in some of the audiology Facebook groups. And I I think the more and more we just keep it as a hot topic in the front of our minds that we will continue the conversation and continue to grow and learn. Awesome. Awesome. That is the perfect encapsulation of where we go next. I love that. Thank you so much. I'll be looking forward to any presentations you'd be (laughs) providing on that topic because this has been such a fruitful, such an amazing conversation. I have learned so much talking to you. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Dakota. And, you know, it's a area we can all grow and learn in. So I hope to hear a lot more things like this in the future. Awesome. If any listeners out there had questions for you or wanted to reach out, if they had anything they wanted to ask you about, what would be the best way to get in touch? Yeah. Email me for sure. My email is how, H-O-W-E, M as in Madison, L as in Lee, at archildrens.org. So it's howml at archildrens.org. And I'd, I'd love to field any questions or if you have a case you want to talk about or if you just need a long distance accountability partner, I'm here. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Madison. It's been so great talking with you and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Dakota. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.